0: Get eighty percent off your impression kit when you use code wondery at byte.com. That's B Y T E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: It's pretty cool.
0: My father like son, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> but he, can't, right. he can't produce. <laughs> he can't produce. He leaves that to dad. He, yeah, he's more
1: creative. He's more with ideas, but he doesn't like the technical stuff. So well,
0: it's good that you can. Yeah. On, on I, top of I, every other I, thing I lear- that you I possibly
1: can. I learned it. I had to. Yeah
0: pretty cool. All right, you ready to go? Okay, perfect. Uh, All right, we are heading into episode 20 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And of course, for more information, you can head to extensionmarketing.com. I was trying to figure out how to introduce our guest. Dr. Paul is sitting in our chair. His resume, by the way, his shorter version of the resume is uh, four and a half pages, single-spaced. He has been a wonderful guest of mine on CTV Morning Live. I'd always looked forward to the information that we were able to share. Uh, pediatrician, a Chief Medical Officer, a Chief Executive Officer uh, of Health for Eastern Ontario. And, and amongst that, the list continues because we've got Professor, when we're talking, John Hopkins, McGill University, uh, studied at Harvard, John Hopkins. It is uh, amazing, the resume. And you were telling me this is just a short version? Four and a half pages, single space? It's the resume. <laughs> This is unbelievable. I, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I knew how brilliant of a man you were, but to see how far back it goes and where you've specialized in your career. Do you ever look at this resume and go, my goodness, I've done a lot?
1: Yeah, actually, sometimes I do, but it, it happened so quickly and it was I had so much fun doing it that I don't look at it as a achievement or anything like that. I just look at it as what I like to do.
0: Is it the children? Is it the medicine? Well...
1: Actually, it's the passion for communications. That's where it all started, and and it really started more the passion of music because I mm-hmm. love music. And and uh, if you ask me what what you are, I tell you I'm a professional drummer. So it's not on my resume.
0: And it's not on your <laughs> resume. But this is where I find your story is fascinating, and we're going to sure. get to children's health and sure. pediatric, pedi- you know, pediatric medicine, mm-hmm. uh, and what we're seeing with our children in, in the future. Sure. And but I do want to start. <laughs> Backwards. Yeah, I find your history fascinating. You do. You say, you have this passion for music yes, and so for drumming. Yeah. How did this all start?
1: Well, it started when I was about nine or ten years old. My parents wanted me to learn the accordion, and um, I, they brought me to this uh, teacher. And in the same room with the accordion, there were drums. And I kept going and playing the drums. I didn't like the accordion. Didn't like the accordion. So eventually, my parents gave in and I quit accordion lessons. And uh, I just picked up the drums and started playing them. Um, came naturally to me. I, nobody, nobody in my family was a musician or anything like that. And it came naturally to me. I started playing, and my mother, my parents heard me play. And then I, then in high school, I remember in high school, uh, my music teacher. Was a professional musician. He was actually the, uh, he was one of my inspirations. He was the director of the HMCS Donnacona band uh, in Montreal, this, uh, a band, Navy yeah. band. Yeah. And he called me in. That's and, a big production. Like yeah. that's a lot of, that's yeah, so a lot I'd of go, musicians together. Yeah, so I'd go okay. and i jam with him on Monday nights. <laughs> and then he actually bought a drum set when I was in grade 10, and I jammed with him every, at lunch. That was my best year when I was grade 10. And that's the same year that I, Said to my parents like, I want to get my own drum set, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, sort of piecemeal. I bought I bought my drum set when I was in grade nine or ten, I think it was. I bought this a Ludwig. Was,
0: okay, was, was this your saved money? Yeah, it was my saved money. Like it wasn't like your parents were like, no. we love that you're passionate about this. We want to support you. <laughs> Let's buy you a drum no, set. No, no,
1: no, no. They were quite resistant to it, but I but finally. They drove me to somebody was selling it for. I remember I bought it. It was a vintage Ludwig, and I got it at a good price. And so I, I brought it home, and I had I was playing. I was already playing, and um, and then coincidentally, my our neighbors uh, was a guy called um, uh, Bro Lloyd Bro, who was the manager of April Wine they were practicing in, my garage, in the garage next door. So I,
0: This is a big Montreal, Montreal, Montreal Canadian band. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And they were practicing there, so I would go and listen to them and jam with them a bit and got to know them. And then down the street, there was another guy called Paul Herwood, who was the bassist for Mahogany Rush. Uh, with uh, Frank Marino. So I met Frank and I played with him when I was about 14 or 15. And they said, why don't you come and tour with us? And I said, no, I'm not. My parents don't want me to tour. I'm 15. Uh, <laughs> Just so, like the movie Almost so Famous. I, <laughs> so I decided yeah. to go back. So I, I continue going to school, but I never stopped playing music. Uh, music drove me uh, even through uh, high school, uh, CGET, you know, junior college, uh, and then undergraduate at McGill. Uh, uh, I played uh, when I could, I played weekends and I played in studio. That's what I did. So I found a way not to tour, but really to play high level. So I got into uh, recording with, uh, at that time, it was like late 70s, 80s, it was the disco music started mm-hmm. coming out. There were no drum machines. So I was, I played drums. I played drums on, uh, you know, Nancy Martinez. Uh, uh, we produced Nancy Martinez. Uh, I played drums on Sunshine Reggae, all the timbala stuff. I did that. Um, and so I did a lot of session, you know, the session work that paid, that paid for my school. And then I played in a variety of dance bands and I'm Greek. So I played in Greek bands mm-hmm. and we created a band that was Greek and played rock at the same time. So we, we, we dominated the market. So we made a lot, well, made a lot, it paid my way through medical school really.
0: Well, when you look at it like that, <laughs> you were able to be passionate about two things while yeah. one was complementing mm-hmm. the other. Because I, I, as you, I've, I've learned your parents really weren't on board. You becoming a full-time uh drummer at no. the time. They were
1: no, but I have to I have to admit they never re, they never, you know, stopped me mm-hmm. knowing that I was going to school at the same time. They supported me in both. Uh, but I'm sure they wouldn't have been happy and retrospectively I think they made the right decision. Uh, yeah. I'm much better off than a lot of the guys <laughs> that I played with when I was a teenager, right? Uh but um I think what so that propelled me to really starting to um uh I used music as an outlet. So when I was doing my residency at the Montreal Children's Hospital for pediatrics, after I have to got my medical degree. I, I would be on call, then I'd go, go to the studio, I bought a recording studio, I bought a big recording studio in Montreal, and I'd just go and I'd r- produce records and, and learn. So from, from a drummer, I became a producer, and then I became a record label owner, and I, I did Men Without Hats, Favorite Nation, um, uh, a, a band called Hit the Ground Running, mm-hmm. which was which Dick Clark's band from the States. So I met, I met a lot of people I, I, on my I journey.
0: Know. It's it's amazing. I, did we we've talked about this though, right? With, Not much. No, no, <laughs> I don't, no, no. But talk I think about I it mentioned CTV, uh, no. my my uncle to you. Uh, my uncle Corky Lang, who yes, was the drummer, yes, yes. Uh, you know, yes. uh, of Mountain, yes. and that was like Mississippi yeah. Queen, uh, exactly. uh, which is like mm. massive seventies yeah, hit. Right, and right. and it's funny because my uncle will often joke that you know he when he was in between millions because uh, you know a rock star in the seventies sure. like the drugs and yeah. the partying, uh, but he actually reinvented himself when Guitar Hero came out. And Mississippi Queen was one of the songs. And then all of a sudden the money starts to come back in. But he was Montreal based um, musician at the time. Like I know it was a a pretty Mm -hmm. tight knit community. But when I think about, and you listen to medical students and residents of what their lives are like and the sleep deprivation and and the still the the massive learning that your brain was able to, to switch back and forth between the musical outlet and yeah. the focus of medicine.
1: And I think that that was, that's a positive compliment mm-hmm. to each other, uh, that actually music was a relief for me, and it was a way of me not thinking about medicine. Um, very often, I was even playing music when I was on call at the hospital and so on. And You see all kinds of things when you're on call, at the hospital, especially a pediatric hospital that mm-hmm. I was working in. So it gave me a bit of a break. I'll know physically I was tired a lot, but I, I got along with like three hours sleep every night for like years. That caught up with me eventually, but um, but I played. I played music. I created music, so it was a creative outlet for me. Uh, It got me. Music helped me where I am today. That really, Mm -hmm. if you look at my the trajectory of my career, it ended up in this position, for that. And and it got me traveling. I've been to Japan a couple of times to sell records. I've been to France. I've been to New York. I've been to Miami. You know, all with the record business that I was in. I was, you know, I was a BMG Music. I was the only Quebec label with BMG distribution in Canada.
0: I. I but when you're when you're amongst the music producers mm-hmm. and you're amongst this the entertainment industry yeah. and you get into conversations with them, does medicine ever come up to be like, oh, by the way, I'm chief uh, pediatrician? Uh,
1: <laughs> they call me Doctor Rock, right? Okay, they we call me. you Doctor Paul, and they yeah, call you Doctor Dr. Dr. Rock. Rock because they. I didn't really say it, but they eventually they, they got it. But what the problem? What I, what I saw though was I didn't fit in typically with the musicians, mm-hmm. and I didn't fit in typically with the doctors. So, I was kind of like in between. What's this guy doing? Like a lot of the doctors at the children's, some of them, not all of them, some of them would tell me, ah, you're not committed to medicine because you're a musician. You know, that's a sort of a backwards way of thinking. Um, and, and, and I couldn't really, you know, I don't take drugs, I don't do drugs, They're counter to what I do. So, you know, we'd walk into the recording studios, would there be cocaine all over the place? I don't, I don't touch this stuff, you know? But it's just that that's the type of world there is. So, to me, it was like I was living in two different worlds, yeah. but yeah. I was kind of in the middle because I, I didn't feel like I fit in to the traditional medical. You know, hit the books and that's it, nothing else. And I didn't fit in, you know, really musically. But when I started to become a record owner, record producer, record company owner, studio owner, I felt better because it was more of a leadership. I could control things Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I didn't have to go on stage and perform. Uh, I was kind of behind now. I didn't. I stopped performing. I was more producing. You know,
0: and did you get as much joy out of producing yeah, the music as I you did, did being did. you know behind the drum I set? I
1: will never forget the first time I, I went into the recording studio. Um, I I did a session work for a company called Tiger Records. I did a um, in Listen Audio Studios in Montreal, and I, I I was in awe with the sound coming out and mm-hmm. the production, and and I always it always sort of uh, it tri- triggered me. And I remember going. I don't know if you remember the show Beat the Clock. It was a show on, it was a show, a game show that was filmed in Montreal, CFCF Studios, and actually went, and I was more intrigued by the back end Mm -hmm. stuff, the cameras and all the production, (laughs) rather than the show itself. So it's it's always been there. So when I started producing early on, our record producer kind of let me produce, you know, and I learned, so I learned, you know, how to produce, how to edit. And eventually, I realized that when, when I finished my pediatric residency, I uh, it was hard for me to run a re- major record label, have a recording studio, and, you know, have a pediatric practice. So uh, purposefully, I did not go into private practice. I went into, I, work, I worked at my children's hospital. I I formed their asthma program, and I created a few other things. And at the, on the side, I, I continued music, but it was almost mutually exclusive. I couldn't do both. It was hard because I couldn't mm-hmm. travel and, and so on. So what I, I, early on, around 1985, 86, I was... I was in the, on the wards, and I was doing a diabetes rotation in pediatrics, and the kids kept calling me Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, because they didn't they couldn't pronounce my last name. So that, Dr. Paul stuck to me, and I said, you know, this is the opportunity I have. You know, I had artists. Some of the artists were unreliable, and it was very hard. So I said, you know, one day I'm going to be the artist. So that's how I created the Dr. Paul brand, where I said, you know, I'm going to create educational material, multimedia material, uh, what Dr. Spock did, but at a multimedia level, um, and, and, and produce it. So, audio, video, in those days it was that. It was mm-hmm. pre internet.
0: Yeah, and it was forward thinking yeah. to be able to do that and, and think that far ahead. Yeah. I mean, now it's a given, well, but you were doing this and the first to do it. I was the first to do it. So, the do
1: it. so mm-hmm. when they say podcasts, I had a radio show. I mean, I had a radio show. This is a radio show, this is just online, mm-hmm. you know? And I had podcasts back in the 1980s and I was doing radio shows in Montreal on CJD, FNB, all these stations called Baby Talk with Dr. Paul. This is back in the 90s. And uh, people were saying, what are you doing? You know, and, and my vision was really to uh, be able to provide material, you know, information to parents worldwide. And then uh, so I started doing some productions um, and, and audio cassettes and so on. And a lot of the pharmaceutical companies bought my stuff and gave it for free. So a million and a half DVDs and videos later, people got my stuff for free, which was, re- which was great. So, I started, so then I, that kind of got me going, okay, well, this is something that I like to do. So, I started, so I became kind of a physician producer. Mm-hmm. So, I had the medical and I had the production expertise and the manufacturing expertise. So, I was able to provide services to all the pharmaceutical companies and a lot of agencies and so on, public health agencies in the States that I would create the videos for them.
0: But let's keep in mind, too, though, that this, this content you're creating is educational. Yeah. It, it's, it's not about you kind of, yes, you got to be in this production aspect of your life but you were providing the information oh, yes 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 you yes. know to parents to yeah. doctors to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to yeah. others to be able to better care and understand the exactly. health of their child
1: exactly well i abandoned you know music mm-hmm. you know so I, I created more productions although i played the mute i created all the music on my soundtrack so but that was the fun part but mm-hmm. really you're right it was really about uh, using and, and i call it multi-format health communications and 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 so what happened was around the time around 1990 90. In the 90s, I started talking to the Dean at McGill, So, you know, we, we should create a health communications department. I thought I was nuts, I didn't know what I was talking about. Then the internet came on and nobody knew about it. And I'm the first physician in the world online. I mean, drpaul.com, drpaul.com, was online in 1994, 95, um, at the time where I was frustrated because it was only 288 modems and there was no streaming, we couldn't do audio, video, or anything like that. To the point where I remember, um, I actually met Mark Cuban online, um, who had a company called Audionet. And what he was doing, because real audio had just come out, it was before Windows Media Player, before Google, before Yahoo, it was we were using Netscape. And at that time, I met him online because he had a company called Audionet. And what he was doing, he was just uh, actually cataloging on a website radio stations that, that streamed live. because It was wow. new in those days. Yeah. And that's how he became a multi-billionaire. He sold that company to Yahoo. Really? For, yeah, for five billion dollars. And
0: you had already had that connection. I had i You do this. Yeah. I had
1: the connection with him, and he had wanted me to do a show mm-hmm. with him. But I saw the guys in this. I didn't know who he was, and I didn't do much about it. And then my then I heard Mark Cuban got four billion dollars for that. So I was I was there kind of and and I I spoke to the inventor of Real Audio because mm-hmm. in those days it was Real Audio. It wasn't Windows Player or or uh, Mac hadn't been out yet.
0: Were you sitting in a studio coming up with ideas or a checklist of what? you wanted this programming or yeah. to be like what was your what was the main message you want to come across on these well the first it's, message especially because it's not you're having to look for it right it's not as easy and accessible as it is yeah well,
1: well the first message was that um, I wanted to uh, the premise was knowledge is comfort that was my mm-hmm. premise so when it comes to child's health and wellness knowledge is comfort and so the more parents know the more comfortable they can be Get taking care of the kids and stress. And 25 years later, I kind of I can now biologically explain why that's important. But that was like 25 years mm-hmm. ago. So that was my premise. So I wanted to have practical, accessible, reliable um, uh, information that was from a professional, sort of from the horse's mouth. And that was my concept. My concept was content created by the people that actually practice medicine.
0: Right. Now, I'm listening to you. Mm-hmm. How much Were you involved with children? I mean, because there was so much of you that was working on content. uh, Like, how... Do you miss, did you miss having the interaction or how much interaction were you having still practicing well, with that, children? I, I practiced,
1: yeah. I had a full-time practice um, at that time. Um, I, I, when I finished my residency, I went to Baycomo for two years mm-hmm. and I went to Baycoma for two years because it was paying more. So I actually created my record company from there. That was oh a long story. <laughs> so I had a record company from there and then distributed through BMG. And then when I came back to Montreal, I, I, was, I became director of the outpatient clinics at the Montreal Children's Hospital. So I was seeing patients, you I were. was running, I was seeing patients all the time. I've been seeing patients most of my career until really just a couple of years ago I stopped. Um,
0: Up until then, though, you were still hands-on. Yeah, yeah, I was hands-on. seeing patients all the time, yeah. What is it about children, and yeah. what was it originally that made you, when you were going the route of, of medicine, that you chose children's medicine? Well, uh,
1: first of all, I, I, I it was... I loved kids. Kids mm-hmm. had an affinity with me. Um, I always played with kids when I was a kid. All the younger kids, I take them out, and my cousins, and so on. I was kind of the role model. I was, you know, I was mentoring them, and so on. And they always liked to play with me, and I was like kids. And then when I went to medical school, it was. It soon became very evident that I didn't want to become a surgeon. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to become a psychiatrist. I, you know, I didn't want to um, become. Uh, just a family doctor either, so I wasn't sure. And then when I went to do my pediatric uh, rotation as a medical student, I said, oh, this is it. Because Mm -hmm. it combined sort of retrospectively a lot of education, and a lot of communication because to be a pediatrician, you need to be able to um, not a, not only have good clinical skills because I can you know I can sort of see things in kids without them telling me because mm-hmm. we're trained that way, but also to rely on communicating both you know from a parent and also communicating to parents what is wrong, right, or what they should be doing or answering their questions
0: right. because you have a patient who might not be able to communicate exactly what's happening exactly. and you to be able to read yeah. off of them yeah. and then you know gosh as a parent you want an explanation yeah. that makes sense exactly. so that you can. Go home and think that you're yeah. doing the right thing, exactly, you know, and to have that ex- explained to you. The concept, and I find music can be incredibly healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the power was it interesting for you to use? Do you find that music can be healing, or yeah. was it a tool you used to for uh, children? Uh,
1: f- well, very often kids would come in with like a t shirt and say, I know the guy, you know, like they'd <laughs> they, they love me because yeah. I was a rocker, right? Yeah. So they they'd identify with me, and and but um, I never really talked about it to my patients, but I encourage them. But I know now I'm an advocate. I, I've actually written some articles on music and your health, music healing, uh, the benefits of music, and also uh, music and, and, and learning. Uh, Brian May, uh, who's the guitarist of um, Queen, has a PhD in astrophysics. And uh, um, Schultz, uh, I forget his first name, the guitarist of Boston, has a master's at MIT. He's one of the co-founders of the Polaroid Camera. And they're both brilliant musicians, so there's no, there's no, it's not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the learning music, um, the the, the, t- the rep- repetitive notion, uh, I think triggers part of the brain and stimulates part of the brain, the brain for better learning and, and outcomes. Mick Jagger has a master's in music. Sting mm-hmm. has a, you know, all these musicians. So it's not a coincidence. There mm-hmm. there is a cause effect between the two.
0: Uh, it, it, right. In terms of those that are able to perform different things at high levels and also on the healing aspect of, I think, of you know, when you have a child heading into surgery, sure. was it like, oh, you, I, know, I, like yeah. you know, healing, here's...
1: healing, listen to music and can, can be a pain relief, you know, there'd be all, all kinds of things. So, yes, I think music therapy is a well-established okay. uh, form, but I didn't really go into it that way because I did it more because I love to create and I love music and, and, and I think it's a very good thing. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are looking at music benefits for other things, you know, and getting kids involved, like boys and girls clubs and young interventions, crime prevention. Actually, my daughter is doing a PhD on that, uh, on music uh, intervention um, as a prevention for of criminal behavior later on in life, wow. um, you know, sort of putting them on the right path. There are mm-hmm. a lot of programs in in, in the South America. The El Sistema program, for example, is a program where they give violins and, and free lessons to underprivileged kids, and they actually do very well. They learn to play music, but they also go to school mm-hmm. and they get out of crime and so on. So there's a lot of benefits for music. I mean, I can go on and oh, on. Oh, I know. I uh, yeah,
0: I find I really do find that this story fascinating, and then I find too the hands-on approach that you were with these children and, and doing things, were there um, children that, are there kids that you remember? Are there patients yeah, that yeah. you, and, and you've had a long career. Yeah. It wasn't just until a couple of years ago that you stepped out of-, of No, no, I've been, I've been
1: practicing pediatrics since 1983. So um, yeah, I, I, I remember, I'll tell you what the good thing about pediatrics mm-hmm. is. The good thing is that um, I, I used to work a lot in the emergency room at the Montreal Children's Hospital, a very busy hospital. And I used to do shifts in the emergency room, intensive care units, you know, all those things what i like about pediatrics uh, is that the kids come in sick they look very sick and a day later they're running up and down the hall the resiliency in kids Mm -hmm. is great and i like that generically speaking what i don't like is having to tell a parent the child died or 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 the child is dying or the child has a you know bad disease um you know what strikes me um and i get very upset when people don't want vaccination And i'll talk about vaccination because i have to is that i remember a child uh he was five years old came into the emergency room uh, with meningitis and uh, uh, he died 24 hours later. A month later, the vaccine came out that would have prevented that disease in that child. And uh, you know, I've I, I, I never spoken to the mother, but if you were to tell the mother that there was a vaccine available, she wouldn't hesitate at all. So I use that story. That really got me because mm-hmm. I took care of that boy and he died 24 hours later, which is a complication of meningitis. And that is, and uh, despite the fact that we have antibiotics, that is a a terrible disease. We used to see kids coming in uh, all over, like literally eight to 10, 12 cases of meningitis and very bad infections from this bacteria called Haemophilus influenza B. And it would literally maim and kill a lot of kids. And, And when the vaccine came out, we've it's gone so now when i speak to residents when i teach now they haven't seen that disease because the vaccine is out there but i'm i am i unfortunately sighed i wasn't around for polio polio was the same because when the polio vaccine came out so those are the 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 things that the tug at me you know the tug at me the the tragedies that i that i see and that's one of the reasons i couldn't work in emergency for for very long I'd, i'd work in the emergency room i'd see kids very sick Um, you know, accidents and all kinds of things, abuse, child abuse, which I hated, you know, parent kicked the child and ruptured the liver. I mean, all these things that we used to see, I couldn't, I would take care of the child. You know, I wouldn't, I would, they'd be crying. My ears would be kind of muffled because I'm concentrating on saving the child. But I go home, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because I had kids at that time. Mm-hmm. My kids were younger. And it was very hard for me to – it's very hard to work in an emergency setting in pediatrics. So that's one of the reasons I, I started to say, okay, I, I want to work, work less in pediatrics. But at the same time, I, was, I, I worked at the Montreal Children's Hospital, and they didn't have an asthma program. And uh, I created the first ever asthma program in the world for kids.
0: Yeah, why was why asthma? Yeah, okay. what, what was the trigger there? Two reasons. Okay.
1: One, it was the number one, preventable admission to hospital. In North America, so in you were kids. seeing
0: a lot of you were seeing a lot of kids being admitted. Yeah, re- that, were, that didn't need to. Exactly. Okay.
1: What happened was they'd come in, stay in the hospital for a couple of days, go home. A month later, they're back. The revolving door, in and yeah. out, in and out, in and out. That's because a few things, but um, and and so that was a really low hanging fruit that we needed to prevent those admissions. Right? Is it, it, it overwhelmed the hospital, and it, it wasn't fun for the families and the kids either. Right? So that's number one compelling factor. Number two was I actually was the first to implement. A, health, um, a medical educator, health educator, in a multidisciplinary team. So I created the team, a health educator, to be able to educate parents. So and I built in in the, curric- in, in the protocol of asthma uh, an educational session for asthma, how to use the puffer, what the signs are, and so on. So once we did that, we started the program in September of, of actually the day after Thanksgiving, October 1990. Within a month, we were full, half day a week, every, half day, uh, half a day, five days a week. And by December, I had to go full day every day.
0: Okay, you're doing that, but then what was the number of decreases of seeing these kids every month? In the Absolutely
1: hospital? zero. They th- there were no repeat we uh, repeated missions stopped, wow. and then with time we got we got everybody else because those are the ones we were capturing. So we were seeing kids that were referred from the community, but mostly from the emergency room mm-hmm. or from the wards. So once you sit down with a parent and explain to them. So that was my, my passion. My passion was you have to embed communications and education and treatment. So I used asthma as a model for everything else that, I, that I've done. It was just to showcase that. It was. I didn't have a particular interest in asthma more than anything else. but it, just, it was, you saw the need I for saw it. the need for it. Yeah. And I also saw the fit where mm-hmm. that's exactly where education and knowledge and comfort and all that come in. Because that made a big, big difference in the kids' lives and the parents' lives.
0: Asthma was the first. Yeah, where were you then able to implement this in other places?
1: We were then we then uh, created a, a, a bedwetting clinic where okay. kids for yeah. bedwetting because again the bedwetting has a lot of stress. A lot of stress. So I created a bedwetting clinic where we had psychological and social a whole multidisciplinary teams. We created an obesity clinic as well at that, at that time, and we created we created a, a learning problems clinic as well for ch- children with ADHD and learning disabilities and so on. So
0: okay, right now you've just brought up four topics yeah. that there's that there's parents listening to this going, Wait, wait, stop. <laughs> yeah. So we created go, those go programs. Back. Let's I, talk. Yeah. I
1: created all those programs that would have team approach, you know, and that was back in the nineteen nineties, multidisciplinary approach.
0: Bedwetting. Mm-hmm. How? What's the percentage? Like how often? Probably
1: about uh, 20%, twenty percent, twenty thirty percent of kids less than five bedwet, mm-hmm. and it goes up to about you know a couple of percentage points in adolescent years. So naturally goes away. There's a family um, history in this. Um, and there are some things that you can do. Um, don't punish a child, obviously. Uh, there are a whole, whole slew of um, uh, rewards that we do with younger kids, for example. We give them a sun, you know, you know a calendar with a couple of stickers, those type of things. There's a bedwetting alarms, with the child, the child, kind of, uh, you know, uh, whenever they wet their panties, for example, their pants, for example, the alarm goes off. They have to get up, and progressively they learn to stop. So we don't believe it's a medical problem. We believe it's kind of a control. Uh, control problem of the brain into into that and there are some medications as well But the good news is when you sit down with parents and tell them listen, you know, you know They say I had it and you know, you are it." you know like so right. when you tell them that it's nothing serious and we do a urine test and in, in 99.9% of the cases there's nothing wrong with the child medically so that in itself reassures the parents right. and just that reassurance De-stresses de- them
0: right And to accept that this is going to be a process, punishment is not the option, and that there are ways to be able to trigger and help the child through it as they eventually grow out of it. You mentioned then, and you mentioned (laughs) obesity, and I'm going to, I want to hit on this. Yeah, Um, sure. So where are we right now with this issue?
1: Uh, I think obesity is a is a major epidemic. Uh, it's a we call it a non communicable disease epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, communicable disease like you know infections. Um, I think it's a major epidemic across the board in in, in most developed countries. Um, I think that uh, there are a lot of factors behind it. There's uh, certainly. Uh, the 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 fact that um, the way we build our society, the way we have schools, and you know we don't drive to school, you know we we drive to school, we don't walk to school. We, you know, it's, it's all, it's all cars, you know, or buses and whatever, and everything's far. Um, also, couple, devices, electronics. And that's my yeah. other one. Yeah. So it's, it's um, inactivity. So it's inactivity based on the fact that we have to, we can't do active transportation. We can't walk or take the bike. And also um, sedentary lifestyle, mostly uh, in terms of behind the screen or in front of a screen.
0: Do you see it more as inactivity or uh, in the consumption of Fast foods, uh, processed foods, sugar. There's both. Yeah. There's, both so sides. There's both sides. There's is both sides. Is one more over, overpowering, or both equal? Uh, both. Both. Equal they're, they're, they're
1: multi. When you talk about when you talk about um, obesity, I did my uh, thesis at Johns Hopkins on obesity. So okay. when you talk about uh, obesity,
0: this podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally, as I've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com.
1: You look at, it's a multifactorial, it's a community sort of approach, which doesn't offer parks and stuff like that. For example, kids in Harlem um, are obese because... And they have a park across the street, but they don't go play in the park because they have guns. They, they're right. they're scared of guns, right? So if you look at that societal thing, and then if you look at it at you know, expen- energy expenditure like is less, less gym, they've cut all that out of school, less opportunity to walk, and so on. And then you look at the consumption point of view, like everything has gone the wrong way. Yeah. You know, It's kind of like this, consumption up, exercise down. And you see it. You see it sort of with time, and that's what happens. So we get excess weight, and that... Uh, and kids, I've seen, and I've ne- when I started practicing, I never saw a type two diabetes in kids. I saw type one, but not type two. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, over the last five ten years, we're seeing fifteen year olds have type two diabetes. You know,
0: I'm I'm angry at society. <laughs> I have to admit, but I'm I'm angry. I'm not going to hit on the food thing yet. But as we were growing up, mm-hmm. we rode our bikes and played at the park and came out and came home when the lights. Mm-hmm. Came on for dinner. Uh, we walked to school. Yep. We had gym classes, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm I'm angry at all of my neighbors. Like, and I have great neighbors, but the the idea of the neighbors who are saying, "How dare those parents let that kid go play outside without super parent supervision?" Or, "I can't believe that they're letting their kid go," uh, you know, and aren't standing outside watching them. Like, what has happened to the, to society? Just saying, let our kids. Go out and play. Because down the road, it is the best thing we could be allowing them to do. I, Move.
1: I, I agree. But there are a lot of society has changed. You know, there's violence all over the place. So I can't blame parents for being apprehensive. You hear all the time. I, you also hear it instantaneously on social media that somebody got shot there. Somebody, you know, you, you hear it. There's a lot of fear. But I, I, I think that, yeah, society has changed. And, and we're working with communities now to look at a better Process of mm-hmm. uh, being able to have safer communities and so on, but but the, that that is a massive cultural shift that has occurred. So I don't know if you should get mad at no, on one person know, or another. No, I know, I know, but, I, but I just, it's a I find massive, it Sad. I find it, it sad that
0: our children can't experience freedom to get on your bike and go for a bike ride and bike to your friend's house and go to the park together. That you just you can't do that. And I try to think that we're a better society. I understand the, the the science behind the kids in Harlem, and and I feel for that. But, you know, no, I agree. in We're general, 90%, you know, like, I agree with you. Yeah, but so there that's are one thing. And then I do. And then I have a reaction when I see a cart being filled at the grocery store <laughs> with white bread, sure. sugared cereal, sure. uh, lunchable, packable, yeah. processed lunch, mm-hmm. you know, full yeah. package. And you're coming from an educational communications standpoint. What are we not? Why? Okay. Why is this not getting through? Okay.
1: Uh, th- several things. Number one. Uh, you have to look at other factors. When I talk about the multifactorial factors, there's something called the social determinants of health. The social determinants of health determine one's health, um, and they have to do with how much money you make, uh, where you live, where your education, and so on. We did analysis and, at Johns Hopkins and looked at um, the cost of a healthy food. It, it is out of the reach for the majority of people, and there is a disproportionate obesity rates in the poor rather than the rich. So there is an actual accessibility issue. So it's cheaper to get fast food um, and uh, cheap food and processed food than it is to get nutritious food baskets. So and that is that is not an excuse. That is that is a real reality.
0: So why aren't we? Why are we not making healthier (laughs) foods more accessible? And And less expensive. And
1: that's what we're advocating for. That's what we're in public health where I work. We advocate for that in terms of being able to offer healthy foods and healthy. And there's a lot more programs that are being done now, like in northern Ontario, they're bringing in fruits and vegetables and and that type of things. We have a green food basket in our area where people can get a a fresh food basket for 10 bucks for a whole month, you know, that type of thing. So we're doing piecemeal stuff, but it has to be a societal thing. So it's not only the poverty causes. It's a whole slew of things.
0: Okay. But how do you have a child in your office at... 13 14 with type 2 diabetes and as a as a pediatrician what is what are you saying to this child and what are you saying to the parent
1: Well basically how do you
0: how do you cope with that
1: well, you have, to, you have to explain to them um, what the consequences are. Not scare them, but do it in a positive way. And uh, work with them to see what's best for them in terms of an exercise program. You have to go through a whole routine, what they're eating and so on. And then give them, we have to be able to teach them how to eat properly if they don't know how. Talk, you're right, talking about carbs and low carbs and processed sugars and so on. But the problem is, I, I gave this lecture to pediatricians. Mm-hmm. You know what they told me? Well, yeah, but I tell them that, but they have no money to buy the stuff. You know, and that's what happens. So you need to know where to refer them. You need, you know, that, So it, that's why it's not just as a pediatrician. Yeah, I can tell you to go and exercise and eat better, right? It's easier said than done.
0: Yeah, you can't tell a fifty-five-year-old <laughs> man who's sitting there in the same issue right. to say you've got to stop. No, but like,
1: it, it's hard. So I right. understand that. Yeah, and, and so it's it's we're never going to solve it. I'll, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. It, it it is a problem, but it's a multifactorial problem. It's not just eating too much and exercising less. It has to do with your environment, a whole slew of things. There's a a social contagiousness to that. So families tend to be, you know, obese. On the the positive side, what I tell parents is learn, you know, bring your child, when I talk about babies, you know, bring them to the table as soon as they can sit in a high chair, eat with you. Eating as a family has actually shown to reduce the level of obesity and actually um, uh, increase the level of good food intake. Eating as a family, as and what family. happens is the other factor is that there's a lot of divorced families, a lot of single parents, you know, mixed families, and they're running all over the place, and they don't have no time, so they they, they rush, they don't have meals together. So I think the one of the things that I I tell parents is that if you Make the time, you know, once, a, you know, once a day or a couple times a week to have meals with the family. It's been shown that that itself actually reduces caloric intake, believe it or not. You prepare and, and having them prepare the meals with you and so on. So there are some simple things you can do that are within your control. Um, obviously, exercise, you know, walking together, getting a, pa- you know, those type of things that you can do. Pa- the other thing, two parents have to restrict the time behind the screen. Uh, screen time. First of all, for young kids, we don't know more. Like now, we don't recommend screen time for kids less than a couple years of age at all okay At and, all?
0: and you have got to see that now that screen has become the know, babysitter of like, course
1: i know like I know. i'm
0: grateful that we weren't mm-hmm, having the ipads mm-hmm, when my kids mm-hmm. were like you know i yeah. had baby einstein and i put them mm-hmm. in front of the television but yeah. they weren't in front of their no, face, I understand. right like,
1: so you have to limit them as well you know turn off the tv at, you know during dinner um make sure that you, they don't go on because we know statistics have shown more than two hours behind the screen is associated with an increase in your obesity rates And we know that. So those are the things that parents can do. So there are things that parents can do within their control, but there are things that society has to do as well. So it depends on the situation. And like I said, I've I've spoken to pediatricians, family doctors. Yeah, theoretically, it's very easy to do, but to say and and to advise, but if a parent can't do that or if a parent has mental health issues, there's a whole slew of things that complicate it.
0: I can see that. And and that leads into, I mean, you go from uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, ADHD, ADD. So, how much of an influence when you're looking at a child um, that they're not meaning to be, you know, jumping off the walls and, and, or, you know, unfocused? Or I'm sure you have so many people going, my child's not reading yet. My child, like, I mean, it's.
1: First of all, you shouldn't compare kids with other kids. Your kid is your yes. own kid. That's <laughs> one thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sure that is the one thing you have yeah. said because every yeah. parent is coming. Well, yeah. my neighbor's kid no, 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 is no, no. doing this and my, each child my other has child own, did it this way. Each child okay. has
1: its own pattern, right? Yeah. Uh, both for growth and development and so on. Um, I think that uh, ADHD... Um, that's a topic dear to my heart because I created the ADHD clinic because I, we saw a need. Okay. Uh, Let's just add that to
0: the resume. Where, were we, where was the ADHD? Where, uh, where was at, my, at the like? children's okay. hospital.
1: was okay. part When I, when I took wow. over the outpatient clinics, yeah. I separated them. I did the pediatric consultation center, the asthma center, mm-hmm. and then I created the clinics within them, specialty clinics within them. Um, and so um, ADHD, um, and I was fortunate to train with the, the pioneers of ADHD, uh, Dr. Weiss, Gabby Weiss, who was, and Dr. Ron Barr, who are one of the first to use Ritalin in kids back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And so, Which at the time now, was like, you're what? Yeah, however, mm-hmm. I trained with them and I worked in, with AD, in, in ADHD clinics with them and I you know, saw a lot of kids with ADHD. I can tell you that the first thing is that it's, the, the term ADHD and hyperactivity is overused. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to get parents, we used to get school teachers sending us kids, oh he's got ADHD, put him on Ritalin. It's because it's easier to put him on Ritalin than it is to uh, look at other issues. And in, in nine times out of ten, they did, the kid didn't have ADHD. So there's a lot of other things that mimic ADHD. I think it's overdiagnosed, um, uh, and you need to make sure that you make the diagnosis properly. I just can't, I just can't see your son or your daughter in my clinic and say, yeah, he's got ADHD. I can't do that. I have to. It's not like looking in a child's ear, right? Or listen to a steth- with a stethoscope. You need to take a history. You need to know. A whole school history. Uh, they have Connors, we have scores and all that. It's the whole thing. Once you have that, then it's a matter of you know deciding, okay, what are you going to do about it? And there's three aspects to it. It's not just in. And, and so there's one, it has to do with school. The schools have to know how to treat that child. You're going to put the child in front of the class. You might give the child oral exams. You might give the child you know less distractions, those type of things. Once and the other thing too is we need make make sure that the child doesn't have a learning disability because thirty to forty percent of kids with ADHD have something okay, else as can well. Can I
0: go back to the issue that we ran into with obesity and we talk yeah. about the socioeconomic mm-hmm. aspect of this? Some parents recognize this and have the the means to pay for the testing. Yeah, I agree. Go and mm-hmm. have it done yeah. and diagnosed yeah. and speak with a psychiatrist, yeah. a child psychologist. Mm-hmm. You know, like. I agree. There again, there's the separation, there of, is a separation. Of, of having a child having the diagnosis and speaking to the school and having papers but, that say this is what the test scores I are get. showing. Like again
1: However, we at the children's did it for free. It was okay, a free service. Yeah. That's why I did it, right? Yeah. Uh but just sort of going back to that and talk about socioeconomic a lot of the kids that are quote unquote hyper are not. They're reacting to things. So, parents divorced, parents, there's abuse at home, or there's all these kind of things that go on. So, you just can't jump on that ADHD bandwagon. I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I uh, disagree with that approach. Yes, when I make a diagnosis <clears throat> and you treat the child, and it's got to be a threefold treatment one is the school. Two is parental behaviors, you know, uh, reminding kids. There's a few, whole slew of things that we do on my website. I've got them listed, strategies for home. And then the third one is medication if the other two don't work. But if you're going to use medication, you have to use the other two as well. So it depends on the situation. Some parents say, yes, I want to try medication. Some parents don't. No. We, we respect them, right? The other thing I want to say is that the, we see a lot of these kids who are acting out and they're, oh, they're hyper. No, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there, there's something going on, going on in the family. I'll give you an example. I had a child that was sent to me, a five- or six-year-old little girl. She kept hitting people and hitting at school and hitting daycare and, and, you know, aggressive behavior. Maybe she has ADHD and this and that. The child couldn't hear. The child was deaf. Nobody picked that up. And she couldn't hear, so she was frustrated and hitting people. She actually had and, and we reversed it because she had fluid in her. She had because of a lot of ear infections, which were silent. We put tubes in her ear. She was fine. So, if I were to say, here, take AD, you know, Mm -hmm. diagnoser is ADHD, it's premature. So, you gotta be careful. I'm not denying that it exists, I think that a lot of people over diagnose it, make, come to that conclusion mm-hmm. very easily. And I can't. sometimes school, you know, it's difficult. We've got 30 kids in the class. Well, that's the
0: thing too, right? It's changed. The yeah. teacher's responsible <clears> for 30 kids yeah. where, you know, 20 years ago, there it, were 20 kids exactly, in the class. Exactly, It's, it's, it's hard. you've got yeah. a
1: couple of kids who have learning disabilities mm-hmm. or ADHD or both, uh, then you've got a problem. So this is what we're seeing. So the, the teachers are stressed and send us those kids. And, you know, unless we have co- concrete evidence, we're not going to diagnose the child with ADHD. We want to make sure there's, other, there's no other things going on.
0: Speaking of the school system, uh, within the school system now, we can get our kids. Um, I, I, have a, I have a grade 7 girl, right? So she just had one of the... Uh, what was the... HPV? Yes. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, there's advancements. There's an opportunity mm-hmm. for me to keep her safe from future infections. Sure. Uh, and you go along with things. Let's hit on your... <laughs> immunizations yeah. uh, and your vaccinations, okay. because I know it was something you wanted to, uh, yeah. you wanted to stress.
1: Immunizations uh, are by far the the most, uh, one of the most important advances we've made in medicine. Okay. If you were to look at public health and pediatrics, you know, a hundred years ago, we were just diagnosing people with infectious diseases that, that they would be dying from. We had no treatments or prevention. And for a lot of the viruses that are out there, polio, Um, uh, uh, influenza you know measles mumps rubella there's no treatment there really isn't any treatment and so the only approach is to be able to vaccinate people and vaccination is kind of like uh, you're you're kind of tricking your body into thinking you've had the infection and then when you have the real infection you're protected that's really what it is so yes people tell me well you know there's some side effects and so on yeah the side effects to everything but if you look at the numbers if you look at numbers like in the hundreds of thousands of cases that were either dying or, or uh, having severe diseases, they're down to two or three now in North America. You know, I gave you that, 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 um, that uh, example of that boy that would have been saved. Really, that, that, bo- that is a vaccine preventable disease. So 100 years ago, we had nothing to prevent those diseases to, and, and nothing to treat them hundred years later in some of the cases we do have antibiotics and but we don't have a lot of antiviral medications so our only approach is to prevent them so the vaccines will prevent uh, infection in these infections and we vaccinate kids you know two four six um, 12 and 18 months of age and Unfortunately, a lot of what a lot of the developmental problems occur during that time with or without vaccines. We know that. So people say, oh, it's a cause effect. It's not a cause effect. you got bathtubs in your health, too. So the bathtub didn't cause it. Right. Like everybody's mm-hmm. got bathtubs. Right. So um, I, I, I truly believe in, in, in vaccines. Um, I, I, I think that people who are hesitant should learn the facts. Um, you know, when I was at Johns Hopkins, it was 10 million out, 6 million kids. Remember Bono did this. Remember Bono was doing this, the guy from U2, he uh, Live Aid, whatever it was, and he was doing this.
0: Snapping his fingers. That
1: was every time he snap a finger, a child dies, right? Because 10 million kids were dying in, in, in developing countries a year. And the top 10 killers, six of them were vaccine-preventable diseases, measles, pneumonias, diarrhea, those type of things. Those parents, and, and we're having trouble getting into them. Like there are certain countries that still have polio because we can't get in there. You know, there's political reasons and you know all kinds of reasons. So when you go there um, and you see them dying, and we're saying here, I don't want my child to be vaccinated, I, I find it as a disconnect somewhere. So I tell that's how that's the argument that I use about about vaccines. And I, and then actually, I'm just writing a book now. It's going to be out uh, next month. It's called Vaccines and the Infectious Diseases They Prevent. And I'm focusing more on the diseases rather than the vaccines because everybody's written about vaccines. So you should know about what Haemophilus influenza yeah. does. You should know what polio does. You should know that. So I, at the end of the book, I said, you know, now having read this, would you rather get the germ or the, or the uh, vaccine? Really? So that's <laughs> – uh,
0: I think it would be a great, a great read, and I think an educational read for a lot of people. Who do you anticipate picking up this book? Like, uh, is it something that I'm going to the chapters and kind of picking up, or is it something that's going to be available at, at the – at the doctor's office. We're for...
1: we're looking. We're we're going to making it. We're going to be distributing. We got a grant. We're going to be distributing through the uh, Family Resource Programs mm-hmm. of Canada across Canada. And we're looking at more. Uh, it's going to be an Amazon and Chapters yeah. and so on. But I, I want to give the book away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're we're looking at some potential other sponsors to give it away.
0: Okay, that's the, that's the second book you're writing. Yeah. Let's talk about the first one because okay. I remember <laughs> I was excited for you yeah. um, when we were talking about it on sure. the show because it was it was almost like a culmination of your yeah. pediatric career. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was especially for parents with young babies, yeah. like because this is mm-hmm. from Newborn Up.
1: Newborn Up, uh, first first couple of years of life, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the
0: book is called?
1: A Baby Comes Home, mm-hmm. uh, A Parent's Guide to a Healthy and Well First 18 Months. And there was a deliberate reason why I, I, I chose 18 months. Why? Because we know that now um, the brain development and all all of the tools that a baby needs to be healthy, both mentally, physically, developmentally, most of it is formed within the first couple of years of life, predominantly in the first 18 months of life. The brain, the, the head size grows from uh, in, to 80% of adult size by two years of age. So the brain sweat really grows. And that is all the pathways that are formed. So the, you're born with a certain number of brain cells And all those connections form, and that's how the brain grows. And those connections, that's called brain sculpting. And they are the ones that develop visual recognition, social patterns, uh, emotional controls, social peer-to-peer regulation, a whole slew of things, plus medical control, uh, adrenal systems and so on. And if a child is not taken care of, is not nurtured properly, abused, during those periods, those times, and that period is, is, is adversely uh, affected, you will end up having kids with heart disease later on in life, uh, with, uh, lo- with not living as long, with all kinds of chronic medical conditions. And notwithstanding, if a child's abused, they're going to have psychological things. Mm. We now know. And we know medically how it works. So that's why I chose that. I said the in, first 18 months are very important. So the first part of my book really talks about why I chose, why I focused on 18 months, and it explains. And actually, a year and a half later, the United Nations followed suit. Actually, I forced them. I actually worked with one of the ambassadors. And, and the World Health Organization, through a colleague of mine in Toronto, um, and the United Nations, UNICEF, put out a paper a year after my book, Saying that uh, early child development is the next important challenge in this world. That a lot of kids are not developing properly because of a lot of reasons, both in developed and underdeveloped countries. And that underdevelopment will lead to illness and uh, inability to reach their optimal pers- uh, uh, projection of life. And that is very important.
0: I, I understand it. It almost like my kids are past that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm fine. going okay how did I mess them up like what no. what did I not do in those first 18 months that are going to 20-30 well. years from now affect them like is, it, it almost puts you in a scary...
1: It's, it, like, I, it, I, I, don't I don't want to scare to, a parent going, if you parents, mess up in the first no. 18 months... You, I don't you, you, scare okay. parents either. It's You have to continue doing that, mm-hmm. okay? It's never too late. I tell parents it's never too late. But it's easier to prevent, the, mm-hmm. the, the, rather have to go back. Kids are resilient. So what are some of the things back? then
0: that, that are suggested in those 18 months? Is okay. it about, you know, sleep and... and okay, a okay. few things. Like, there's so few, much in, okay. in there.
1: Nurturing environment has okay. safety, immunization... Care, nutrition, and tender loving care, TLC. The eye of that one, and that is the most important thing. You don't. You, you they need face to face contact, eye eye to eye contact. That stimulates the brain development. Uh, they need smile. They need they need to interact with even a, a newborn needs that. That's what feeds that process in the brain. And so that interaction. So kids who are stimulated continually, read to, reading mm-hmm. to your child first from first day of life will stimulate a child, um, and that will stimulate that. Not letting a child cry it out uh, is good. Don't let a kid cry it out. You know. Uh, okay, And that's the thing. <laughs> that, that's the we, that's the, okay, the Farber method. Whatever. Yeah. I don't believe in that. You you need to have some kind of a, a, a tolerance to. How much you're going to let the child cry, then you nurture the child. Neglected kids, like for example, the, or- the kids, their orphan kids in Romania, for example, their heads were much smaller than the kids who were not neglected. That's because the brain didn't develop properly. So there will be consequences in the long term for that. Now, that's a very extreme case. Yeah. In most situations, what we're saying is, parent, and we as a society, again, it goes back to society, we as a society need to ensure th- that there is a nurturing environment. The parents are capable of doing a nurturing environment. Now, in certain areas, the parents are single, they're struggling, they have their violence. All these things get in the way. Again, it's the social determinants of health that get in the way. But my book wasn't meant for that. Politically, I did that. I, that's how I advocate for with governments and so on. But for parents, it's just a matter of saying, you know what? Stimulate your child. Play with your child. You're not spoiling your child. And you're not going to spoil an 18-month-old. Let's, let's put it this way.
0: But how simple for so many people with looking down at your child and smiling and laughing and making eye contact and giggles and facial expressions. That doesn't cost money. TLC is free. In one of my sections, I write
1: it, TLC is free. TLC is free. Anybody can do it. I remember... I remember um, giving a lecture and uh, talking about poverty because it's associated and we know the kids that uh, are poor, uh, they're not as ready for school as the richer kids are and that's because of parents are struggling, you know, there's a whole demographic issue. And uh, I remember I, I gave a talk once and this guy in the audience got up and said, you know what, I grew up in a family, we were 12 living in home, you know, very poor and I got a PhD in psychology. So I said, yeah. I said, poverty doesn't cause it, it's the other things that get in the way. I said you were you were twelve people. You are always on somebody's knee, like you're another an aunt, a grandmother. You're always stimulated, mm-hmm. so it's it's free. It doesn't. It's not the poverty. It's the stress that poverty. So if a child is feels your stress, then that's going to be a negative thing. So it's an opportunity for us to ensure that the brain develops to its maximum. It'll it, the first of all the brain develops to twenty five, but the a lot of the foundational stuff is done in the first couple of years of life. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't hurt anybody just to love the kid, read your child, read to your baby, grandparents, uncles, whoever it is, just keep stimulating the baby. There's nothing wrong with that. And as a matter of fact, that's what we're now recommending worldwide as kind of an additional approach. I mean, it makes sense intuitively, but there's a scientific reason for it now.
0: What is your next – have I hit on all of the different programs that you have launched into what what is next? you have another book, as you were mentioning, coming out this
1: the the vaccine book is is more because of my frustration for Mm. anti-vaxxers I'm giving I have a second version of this book I'm actually adding a few things to this this book to the first one to the first Mm -hmm. one and I'm doing what what did you want to add to it Um, I'm adding the fact that now the United Nations recommends this because it's you know Mm -hmm. that that they they didn't when I wrote it initially and I'm just adding a few other things like Zika you know new things that have come up Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and I'm making I'm I'm doing some more tropical diseases like malaria and so on in case because Asian countries want to start looking at it now as well so it's 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 not much different i'm just gonna it's the same kind of thing Mm -hmm. but i'm doing it in french as well and possibly in chinese um some of my colleagues from harvard are in china they want to do it in chinese so um i think that what we're gonna it's just getting it Mm -hmm. out there you know getting it out there
0: you know we're how long into the podcast and you bring up harvard most people you mention harvard and you, you stop and go that's amazing oh, yeah. how like how did you end up there also I like do you take these snippets from all of the places that you've studied and worked for and realize that there are people worldwide that are really working to embed like to make life better to yeah. advance science to yeah. find ways to yeah. make yeah. lives better Well
1: first of all let me just talk to you how I got in Harvard and Johns Hopkins okay long story my zeal for finding a home for my health communications you know I wanted to do it at McGill when I was back then, I created the Department of uh, Multiformat Health Communications at McGill. But this was back in the 90s, early 90s, late, mid 90s, or something like that. They didn't understand what I was talking about, so I was frustrated. So I started doing a lot of work on my own, working in the United States, um, uh, public health agencies, videos. I was doing a lot of work with them. And then all of a sudden, I got this opportunity to work at the East Ontario Health Unit. I was doing a clinic in Hawkesbury and the, some headhunter called me and said, you want to be medical officer of health and chief executive officer for Eastern Ontario health unit. And I said, what is it? I didn't know what it was because mm-hmm. I was living in Montreal at that time. So that position, when I, when I looked at it and, and I said, I don't, I'm not public health. He goes, yes, you are. I saw your website. So I mm-hmm. said, yeah, you're right. Cause I've done all the, you know, right. a lot of the stuff. He goes pediatrics is public health. You know, it's what you do. So uh, they interviewed me and they gave me the job. And they gave me the job in 2000, I started in 2007. But to be a medical officer of health in Ontario, you have to have a specialty in community medicine or an MD degree with a master's in public health. So I didn't, so so I said, I wanna go to Johns Hopkins. So I went to Johns, I worked there and I did Johns Hopkins on the side. um, And then I became a faculty at Johns Hopkins. Uh, And that's where I learned a lot about international programs. And I became good friends with the Dean and those people. So uh, now I will be teaching health communications there in public health. And then a couple of years later, I said I wanted to get a, a business, de- a formal business degree because I, I did business. I was running a record company and so on. Um, and I, so I, I said I wanted to do a master's, in, uh, an MBA. And the, the MBA's the traditional ones would not, were not flexible enough for my job because the traditional ones, um, I had to be with, on a team. Uh, I had to go to China for a month. Uh, and, and if, if there's a big pandemic emergency, I can't go and present. So, I'm belitt- so I told the dean and they accepted me at the, one of the programs, and I said, no, I can't go. Then I, I called Harvard, and I said, yeah, we have a mini-MBA. We have a mini-program. You have to come here for three months, though. Live here. It's the MBA condensed in three months. It's advanced management, whatever degree. So I went. I went for three months. I Because it, it's an hour flight. So I, if it was an issue here, I would be able to fly back an hour, right? So I went for three months and uh uh it was the time of the Boston Marathon uh, explosion we were there and um and so we uh uh i learned a hell of a lot there too about business and really international business uh, you know finances and all that so it really was able to give me and then i made a lot of contacts you know mm. uh, we had the vice president of boeing in my class we had the uh Deputy Minister of um, Health of Israel in my class. We had a wow. lot. Of, so lot the, of... these
0: are these are individuals who have established themselves yeah. in their own yeah. fields, yeah. Uh, still looking yeah. to yeah. empower yeah. and better, yeah. like yeah. educate themselves. And I find that's an interesting. Most people kind of, they, they get their degrees and, well, they, and they set off in life, but, it, but in order to continually evolve.
1: Well, I got to tell you, when I did, when, to get my medical degree and my, and my um, uh, pediatric specialty, I had to go to school 13 years after high school, 13 mm-hmm. years after high school. And when I finished, I told my wife, I'm never going to go back to school. But then when I got this opportunity, I was, yeah. I was 49 or 50. I went back to school when I was 50 um, after having taught 20 years.
0: I find that fascinating. You know, and I I, I I want to mention this. I've met your son. Yes. But, you know, you're a parent. Yes. How often did your own, you, you being a dad and you being a doctor, affect the decisions that you made for your own children's health?
1: Um As a doctor, it it, it affected him a lot. I was very prudent and careful because I saw all these safety things. I was very Mm -hmm. safety conscious. My wife, my wife, because you saw that in the emergency room, right? Like you saw accidents that were like stuff that never other people like what, like oh, kids strangling themselves by accident with their dog's leash on a a staircase, Uh, child left um, in the bathtub uh, because they, they called the mother to go and see the car. The child was hit by a car came back both the child oh, okay. you know like, like 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 terrible stuff like terrible stuff you know uh, infections and accidents and children uh, nodding car seats going through you know the windshield you know like uh, all that stuff so
0: became,
1: I, I became very paranoid. My wife too, because my wife worked at the I met my wife at the hospital. She was a respiratory technician at that point, so she was seeing all the horror cases as well. So I'd be I'm hyper protective <laughs> if you like. Yeah. And my kids tell me why that I said, buddy, I've seen it. You know don't you know and, well, I, and, and I and we, I, and we I did segments
0: on like safety with at yeah. Christmas time, yeah. Christmas lights oh, you yeah. know and bulbs and Lego pieces. How many and, times and, kids and, oh, even oh with
1: uh, having swallowed a light bulb, having choked on, a, you know, put an electric cord in their mouth and burnt themselves. I, I mean, I, I've seen it all. I, we had a whole thing on a wall of stuff that we've pulled out of kids' throats, needles, safety pins, uh, bobby pins, uh, you know, staples, nails, you name it. We've, we've got a whole wall of stuff that we've taken out.
0: So, I, I, so I've, I've gotten why. that. <laughs> but it's made for some really informative segments, yeah. I have to tell you that. Yeah. And I know a lot of this is to be found uh in the book, in in a lot of the things that you continue to get information out, and, and
1: my website, and my website is now getting, you know, I, I revamped it mm-hmm. a bit because yeah. I had ab- I had abandoned, not abandoned, and I just let it go a bit because I had a lot of other things <laughs> I was doing. Uh, but now I've I've, I've revamped. Uh, actually, again, a Harvard colleague of mine redid it for me, mm-hmm. uh, re, re, relaunched it, and I'm starting to get like two, three, four thousand page views a day now. Which oh my I God! Was so,
0: drpaul.com. Dr.
1: DRP at UL.com. Yeah, it, and it's number it's and still growing. It's still growing. That's when amazing. I when I was before I started this job, if you would Google uh, child health and wellness I was number one if you google abdominal pain in children I was number one so I lost that ranking because of technic- some technical reasons mm-hmm. uh, but now I'm going back up so if you do if you do google infant regurgitation I'm number one google uh, you know ch- adenoids I'm number one and like it, it, because it's content and I was first well, everyone's I was looking first. I know
0: and and we talked about that and yeah. and you were the first and still not everyone's catching up you know no. because there's so much information that needs to be there yeah. how do you keep up then with the content okay on this because it's constantly okay. evolving okay
1: first of all especially I, when
0: you have like three thousand a day.
1: first of all i my content you see the good thing about pediatrics is that many things don't change so the development and all those things are, are the same so I also write a weekly column for the Sun Papers. Uh, sometimes it's in Ottawa Sun. For years I wrote for the Edmonton Sun and Calgary Sun. But now I write for the local Cornwall paper, a standard freeholder. So I've written like 800 articles. Or so. I've got hundreds of articles that I've written. So every week I do fresh topics. So when they're pertinent, I put them on my website. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what's on my website, it's, I call my website an online encyclopedia okay. more, more. So it's, you wanna, you wanna know what croup is, you wanna know what HP, you know, like it's all there. And, and then, then I keep it, I, yeah. I keep it up. And so now the way I do it, it's, you know, I, I, I'm the webmaster. I can do it myself.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and you brought up so many basic, like the croup, like we called it the croup in, in, in my sure. house. Like mm-hmm. it is scary as a parent oh, when you're listening to your child not be able yeah. to breathe. Right. And it's, and I remember the midnight, like rush to the hospital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going to come across someone like you who's seen Thousands upon thousands of yeah. cases, right? But it's thousands for you. It's one case that's right. for and, us, and right? That's, yeah. and and that's the key perspective on it. Yeah, is-
1: well. I'll tell you. I remember my uh, my sister. Um, uh, my sister was living upstairs. Had just married and had a baby, and uh, I was I, I still was living at home. I was just I, I was finishing my residency, and my brother in law came down the stairs. Boys, take him to the hospital. He's choking. Yeah, croup, so I went mm-hmm. up and saw him, "It's croup. Don't worry. You know, like you know, he's fine. You know,
0: what's it for you? Is it go stand outside or go put them in the hot? Uh, um, what, it, what's well, your recommendation? Okay,
1: if it's winter, yeah. open the window. Okay. Okay, cold, humid air. If it's summer, uh, go to the shower, cold mist, and, and it's the cold it mist. It's the cool mist. You need yeah. a cool mist. Yeah, okay. It helps them. Now there are situations where we admit kids to hospital, mm-hmm. um, but in most nine out of ten cases, it's just the scary sound. You hear a child go, you know, oh, strider. It's, it's very scary. It is terrifying. Yeah.
0: What do you think about telehealth?
1: I I'm I predicted telehealth mm-hmm. in 1990. <laughs> yeah, 1985. Actually, I predicted Netflix. I'm on tape from oh, 1989 predicting Netflix and predicting online and demand and all that. And, and I was doing a show in San Diego at one point. I've got it on tape. And um, I think telehealth, that's that's part of it. When I when I created my vision of health communications, I have content, health content in the middle of the wheel, and I call it the spoke. And everything else is the media that you distribute it with. And the content can be educational, diagnostic, therapeutic. So that's where the telemedicine comes in. Same thing. So whether you're, you're using the technology to make a diagnosis or, 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 or whatever, or just to, just to, it's part of it. It's part right. of my normal. I saw that like back in 1985 or But we're,
0: we're calling telehealth and we want the person on the other end to it, be. Oh, it's okay. It's normal. Just Oh, so, you, you know. mean that yeah. thing? Oh, yeah, okay. Like, well, oh,
1: telemedicine, yeah. I, I use it in a different context, okay. but telehealth is you calling somebody I think it's good to have somebody be yeah, able to support you. Yeah, but
0: usually you. they're going to tell you at the they end of the, the conversation, yeah, they're going go to, to the tell the you to merges. go to Merge because they yeah. can't make that, they that can't call. They can't make that call. It, yeah. But
1: I, and, and very often I, I always tell my my patients and, and mothers and fathers, you know, the information that we give you really is to support. Mm-hmm. I can't make a diagnosis. Like I can't yeah. tell you your child has got this and that. But very often they go to the doctor, they, they told something, they come home, they go online and they, and they read about it. And that's what... But I oftentimes, use my and, and this
0: is the last thing I want to ask, because I'm just yeah. looking at, at the clock, and I'm going to just have to have you back, because I'm going to get <laughs> questions in and be like, we need to know more from Dr. Paul about this, um, is that we over Google. Yeah. I, I, You're you're saying you go to the hospital, you come back, and they're going to do more research, but it can be overwhelming when you yeah. go to the Google machine and type yeah. something in, yeah. and then.
1: Uh, I tell parents, and that was something that I tell parents, uh, you need to know who, what the source is. Nine out of ten times it'll be a site that's trying to sell you something. There's a hot link to a pill or something. Look at the look at the who the credentials are. Go to my website. you see my credentials. Go to Mayo Clinic. Go to the you know with the credible things. Um there's a lot of uh, hack, you know people that are quote unquote health sites, but they're friends for storefronts. You know, so you got to be careful, but you can learn. And and I also tell physicians, you got to know what's out there. Mm -hmm. When I teach physicians, I say, you got to know what's out there because the patients are going to come in with something. So you got to be able to rebuttal it. You got to rebuttal it. You got to go back.
0: It was an awesome... Uh, I, I have so much more and I'm looking at the clock. We're going to have to have you back. Does that sure, sound good? In sure. between some of your recordings that you're doing these <laughs> days uh, and books that you're writing. Uh, DrPaul.com, if you're looking for more information. Uh, so many different topics. And yeah. well, it's, it's overwhelming, but a fascinating story. And I think giving us a different perspective, you know, on, on how we're developing and how we're doing with our kids and uh, encouraging us to kind of expand our, our thought process. I can't believe... How your brain worked all these years? Yeah. Well,
1: uh, it's it's. I, I think it's good. I think that people should um, uh, really be open open yeah. to try things. And uh, um, music saved my life. Yeah. And Music uh, it made me what it what I am today. I say that all the time.
0: Well, wow. it's been a pleasure. Nice to see you nice again. Nice to be here. Uh, and there you have it. Once again, DrPaul.com if you're looking for more information. Uh, and that's going to be a wrap on episode 20 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang.